Welcome, everyone. This is podcast number seven. I have with me Charles Murray, longtime faculty member at Harvard University, author, author of The Bell Curve, Coming Apart, Losing Ground, Human Accomplishment, and of particular interest to me, uh, a forthcoming book on poker. So uh, this podcast started because um, I noticed Charles's name circling around the poker Twitter, Twitter sphere. And I was shocked that the, the reception wasn't entirely positive because for, for, for me, if, if you have a, <clears throat> a, a well-regarded academic who happens to be a poker hobbyist who's gonna jump in and, and write about the poker world, that seems like something you should grasp onto with, with open arms. So, so we'll, get into, we'll get into why the, the grasp wasn't fully open uh, as, as we go along. But for, for myself, I'd love to welcome you into the poker world because it's, it seems like you have a long affiliation with poker and you, you might know that we've become a very small, a very small world. It's, uh, it's, it's been shrinking for quite some time and we, we, enjoy, we enjoy poker quite a lot, but it's, a, it's very few hobbyists these days. So maybe we should start, you could tell me uh, how you decided to write a book about poker and maybe give some history of your involvement with poker. Sure, I'd love to. Uh, first, I've got to uh, say that I'm not a member of the faculty at Harvard University. That probably happened because my co-author of the Bell Curve was a longtime professor there. I've been affiliated with the American Enterprise Institute in DC for a number of years. Okay, poker. The reason uh, I've actually made the decision to go ahead with the book is my wife. I have finished a book that's coming out at the end of January. And it was a long, hard slog. It was three years of work. And uh, so I finished it. And my wife knows very well that if I don't have something to do, I'm going to be miserable. I, I, I sort of writing books is what I do. Well, my hobby has been poker for years. And by hobby, I mean, I go play at the local casino a couple of times a week. Uh, I go out to Vegas uh, maybe two or three times a year, play out there. I'm... I'm purely a recreational player. I play two five no limit, and occasionally I play PLO. So I've never been able to get the skill set necessary to move up in stakes. But I love the game, and in fact, you can, if you search uh, online for "Poker is America" and Charles Murray, it'll bring up a New York Times op-ed I wrote several years ago, where I was just talking about how great it is to go to a poker table and meet all kinds of people that you'd never meet in your daily life. Uh, the, the, well, I'll tell you, my casino is at Charlestown, West Virginia. And uh, it used to be the only casino in the Washington, D.C. area. So we had every kind of ethnicity, every kind of socioeconomic background. You had a couple of senior White House officials that would show up for the game. You have farmers. I just love that about it. And I love the camaraderie at the poker table. So poker has been something I'll come home and tell my wife about uh, the people there and what I've done. And I'll tell her about the bad beats and all the rest of that. And she knows that she's, she's been kind of fascinated by my stories of that world. She said, why don't you write a book about poker? And, and then I said to myself, well, what kind of book? I can't write a whole book about the social activities of the 2-5 no limit game. 
But what really interests me, Brandon, is what's going on in the, among the pros. And that's something that I will be asking you questions about, whether in this podcast or in subsequent conversations. Here's what I see as having happened, and I'm willing to stand corrected. You have, uh, starting in the late 1970s, with the publication both of Sklansky's first theory of poker version and Super System with Doyle Brunson and the others, you had uh, a kind of strategy discussion about high-level poker that was unlike anything that had been done before. People didn't write about that kind of stuff uh, before. Okay, so that goes on in the 80s and 90s. And as the World Series of Poker gets bigger and bigger, then you have the internet age come. And starting around, you can tell me probably more accurately than I can, starting around 2005, 2006, 2007, you start to get this application of game theory to, uh, to high-level poker. And now you have this very mathematically sophisticated, uh, different way of playing poker than you've had before. So you've got these two different worlds. For, for shorthand, I'll call them the world of the Doyle Brunson world and uh, the Phil Gelfond world, just as a way of labeling them. And so what I want to explore are the cultures of both of those worlds. It's not going to be an instruction book. It's going to be a book that takes the reader into your world. You know, the the way that you prepare, the, the, the kinds of camaraderie you have with other poker pros. And I also want to do that with the, with the old school world. So I've gone on and on, but that's basically what I want to do. I I love it. Um, So the history of that era, when when the theory of poker came out, you um, you had revolutions going on, not just in poker, but also in... uh, blackjack and casino gambling, which became professionalized. It happened to be, that happened to be where people made the most inroads, but they were trying to quote unquote, solve other games. You also around the same time, um, a lot of the same characters that were hanging out in Vegas in the seventies, trying to solve poker and uh, blackjack were also trying to solve financial markets. Um, So the, uh, advances in derivatives pricing that came <clears throat> most prominently in 1973, you you had uh, you had people trying to solve and beat option markets at that time. So the a, a great history of the of the era is Edward Thorpe's new book, where he had tried to do a little bit of of everything. He tried to do a little bit of derivatives pricing, a little bit of blackjack, and sort of dabbled in poker. Um, but you see that there's a lot of the same characters. So the guy that runs, uh, the, I believe, the biggest financial derivatives firm in the world, Susquehanna, he got his start in uh, undergrad poker games, and, and he was going to Vegas a lot playing blackjack, I believe, as well. So there was a lot of overlap in those worlds, and there, uh, a lot of advance in the 70s and and 80s and then i'm sure you know the history of the the mayfair club in in new york where a combination of professional gamblers and financiers would get together and talk poker strategy they hadn't they hadn't quite 
uh, inserted game theory fully into the conversation, but but um, there was a lot of progress made in the 80s as well. And then the internet poker era, it really started in a flurry in 2003 because what happened was late 2002, you had very, very few people playing online poker. I, uh, I was at Harvard at the time and they had the Harvard Poker Club and it was, it was a pretty diehard group of poker enthusiasts, poker theorists. And uh, there was exactly one guy who was playing online in like late 2002. It was a very small world in late 2002. Then 2003, you started hearing people talk about like poker stars and online poker a little bit more in early 2003. And then in June of 2003, something very dramatic happened, which was that Chris Moneymaker, who had won his seat in the World Series of Poker for $25 on poker stars, won the World Series of Poker for $2.5 million and beat Sammy Farha heads up on national TV. And, and then all of a sudden, poker stars latched on to this. 2003, Brandon, that money maker? Yes. I hadn't realized it was that early. I started, yeah. playing, I started playing in June 2003, which would have been about that time. <clears throat> but I think I was playing before Moneymaker. Um, um, yeah, it probably wasn't accidental that you started playing at that time because there was a lot of buzz uh, around Moneymaker at that. Yeah, so 2005 was Raymer, right? And two, the 2003 phenomenon was massive. It was massive for everything. It was massive for online poker adoption. It was massive for... Uh, poker on TV and ESPN, massive for World Poker Tour. That, that was really the, the acceleration. And the acceleration pretty much continued until online poker was, was made de facto illegal uh, around 2009, I believe. I would say like, World Series of Poker main event numbers give you decent traction on how the poker boom was, was expanding. And you can just see 03, 04, 05, 06, was a massive, massive uptick. Um, and game theory applied to poker is sort of a different conversation because you had, um, you had two plus two that was a, a website and chat forum run by David Sklansky, the author of The Theory of Poker. And uh, 2 plus 2 was extremely active in those years, 2003 through 2009. And where it's become more of a, a gossip site today and not so much about poker theory, back then it was people playing poker every day uh, trying to think about poker in the best way, trying to make advances in their own games, trying to understand what the top players were doing. And it was a fairly positive atmosphere. There wasn't a lot of uh, negativity around. And, and so um, that was where a lot of the top players cut their teeth, as it were. It was, it was a combination of playing every day and chatting with other top players who were 
willing to be open about their approach to the game on two plus two. Where, where were you at that time? I was at Harvard, but I was playing a lot of poker and I went all but dissertation in 2004, in late 2004. And then from those years onward, I was teaching in the spring semesters, three courses each spring, but then the rest of the year I was uh, doing other stuff and I was playing a lot of poker. What, 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 what's your field? I taught five years of behavioral finance, one year of game theory, and three years of international macroeconomics. So I, I taught game theory in uh, 2008. And it was interesting because, so the fall of 2006 was the year that Bill Chin and Jared Enkinman's The Mathematics of Poker came out. That was the defining moment when game theory started to be applied to poker in a systematic way. Um, before that moment, you, you had maybe a chapter of game theory on, uh, in Sklansky's uh, <clears throat> theory of poker and in his no, no Limit book, you had um, tiny threads about game theory on two plus two, but it was basically trivial application. Now, of course, the game theorists had long been interest had long been interested in in poker. So, in theory of games and economic behavior, von Neumann he dedicates a lot of space to poker, and and like it's it had long been of interest to game theorists, as like this would be an interesting area to 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 make further progress, but. Um, it was not, nothing much had been done until that book in 2006, which was truly revolutionary, but we've come a very long way since then because that book, which was late 2006, I'm pretty sure, um, was an application of, it, it, it constructed toy games that were similar to poker and solved the toy games and suggested how, how one might apply that in, in the broader forms of poker. And then it also uh, did something which I believe had not been done at the time, which was <clears throat> to solve short stack poker completely. So to answer the problem, if, if you and I are playing uh, 50 cent a dollar, no limit and stack size is 90 and my only str strategic uh, option is to jam or fold, which hands exactly should I jam or fold with and which hands exactly should you uh, call or fold, which is your only strategic option with. Um, it answered that problem, which was the most profitable sort of immediate application because that had obvious implications for tournament poker. And they were, they were also able to show that for say under 15 big blinds, that was your, that was your best way to play. And, and, and so that it had quick application. Um, but I think people saw the promise 
with when that Chen and Ankenman book came out in 2006. And then they started making some, some strides along those lines. You, you also had sort of, from a PR perspective, you had um, the fact that at the time the mathematics of poker came out, Bill Chin and Jared Enkinman were both full-time employed uh, by Susquehanna Investment Group, the, the firm that's the biggest derivatives maker, uh, option market maker in the world. And they work for Jeff Yass, longtime poker player. Um, their friend who had worked at Susquehanna for a year, Matt Harolinko, was at the time the winningest limit hold'em player. And he had the, the advanced copy, as it were, of the mathematics of poker, and he was, that was clearly his orientation. So people were like, oh, this book came, came out, this, this looks interesting. And also, Matt Harolinko, who's the best student of this book, is destroying everyone in Limit Hold'em. And then, then the path was clear that, that, that you were going to go that way. And, and the, for the no limit guys who were truly game theoretic in orientation to rise to the top took another two or three years. Um, and probably the most influential in that group was uh, Ben Salsky, Sauce123, because he his dad, I believe, is a computer scientist who had some familiarity with the like University of Alberta game theory work applied applied to poker, um, and he would Ben would work with his dad and uh, and other people who were advanced in the field and and think about how to apply game theory to no limit in PLO, and he was. He was clearly ahead of everyone. You could just talk with him and see that he was ahead of everyone. And you could, you could also look at his results, which were very good. Um, and so uh, from there, it was a, a continued acceleration. And then three years ago, two and a half or three years ago, you uh, had the development of some of the advanced solvers like Munker solver that that could be applied and 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 really just was we're, we're, we're at this point those efforts of applying solvers game theoretic based solvers to poker have gone a long way and I feel like poker now is destined to be um, not fully solved but changed forever by the application of analytic methods and technology to what is a static game and a simple game by a computing standpoint, from a computing standpoint. So that's kind of, I think, where we are. Um, and it's, I think five years from now, poker maybe becomes a boring game where everyone's got their Google glasses on and the, the solution and the database flashes on the, in the, in the upper right and they, they know what to do. Um, and then it and then it becomes a matter of can you apply the solutions that the Google Glasses tell you to do? If they, if they say bluff with one third uh, frequency, can you execute on that bluff? Uh, I, I suppose that's where the game goes.
Well, does it go that way for a very rarefied <clears throat> small subset of people? Here's, Brandon, the thing that, one of the things I really want to get into when I'm working on the book. Um, if you're playing eight tables on poker stars and you've got heads up displays and you're playing, you know, how many hundreds of hands per hour, I can see where it's really a big deal to, to have uh, become very advanced in game theoretic approaches. If you are going to uh, a game at your local casino where you're getting 15 hands every half hour, maybe 15 or 16 hands, you're playing against people that you've played against a lot. Well, you're in this situation. I, I imagine your games in Miami. Uh, to what extent are you making decisions made on game theoretic considerations and to what extent are you dealing with the, the people in front of you and the specific situations that are coming up and making exploitative decisions based on that? I think to a surprising extent, you're relying on the, on the game theoretic frequencies. Um, because a better example than the Miami games is the tournaments that have been going on at ARIA for some time where they've been doing the, the rake-free high-stakes tournaments. Um, and there the pool is a fairly small pool of people. And you really are interacting with the same people in important spots quite often. And you also know that hands are reported, hands are talked about, hands are sometimes streamed on TV in a way where uh, people get a sense for your frequencies and, and you have to kind of play close to what, what you think is game theoretic optimal in, in, in certain spots. Now there's always going to be some, some meta of, Oh, I think this person thinks this about me and they don't understand that I'm really, uh, have frequencies that are, closer to GTO than they think. And I, I'll play off that or there's, there's always going to be that meta in poker, but, um, but the, the ARIA environment is the closest I've ever seen to one where you're, you're, you're playing against the same group live and you're playing in important spots often. And you want your frequencies to be about GTO. Um, in, in, uh, say, deep stack live cash where you have maybe amateur players that are playing infrequently um, and you're getting into important spots with those amateur players. Um, you do have that trade-off between <clears throat> exploitive and what you think of as, as GTO. Um, and <clears throat> there um, again, I try to err towards, towards GTO just because especially in today's world, like information about hands, it spreads so fast. You have, you have to assume that people know more about your frequencies than you think. Um, so in the old days you could like try to get in other people's minds a bit more. What do they think about me? What am I actually like? And, and Today, you have to assume that they know more about you than you think. Um, Did you play in the big game uh, in Bobby's room very often? 
Uh, no, because my mixed games are competent, but not, not outstanding. I've I played big bet in Bobby's room many, many times, but uh, the, the mixed games, uh, competent, but not, not Bobby's room ready. I'm thinking about, okay, suppose we've got a hypothetical table of, let's say, Doyle Brunson and uh, Daniel Negreanu and Chip Reese and Johnny Moss in their prime. So assume they're in their prime. And you've got you and you've got Phil Galfond and you've got uh, Jason Kuhn and Ryan Rast, let's say. And you play 10,000 hands. When you look, when you analyze what happened in those hands, and you know, let's say you have complete information, what kinds of differences in play are you going to see over, you know, frequencies and decisions and so forth? Just speculating between really, really good players as of the 1990s and really, really good players now. Yeah, let's say really good players of as of the 90s. So you're, I, I remember your new school examples. Your old school examples are, are living Chip Reese, Doyle Brunson, and who else would you put in that camp? I put, I put in uh, Daniel Negreanu and John. Okay. My, give me some time on this answer because it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's sort of, a, it's sort of a, co- a complex answer. I would say... Uh, Let's start it like this. There's, when I look at the poker world now, having been around for a long time, I don't think we have anything close to the complete poker player. So there's, there's just no one I look at and I say, that person has it all, he's unbelievable at poker. Um, and the reason I say that is because there's so many different elements that go into a strong poker player. It would, it would be an impossible package to have all of it, but we're just really far away from it. Really far. Um, and I think, I think the reason is because, um, as you've implied, it's difficult to have a detailed knowledge of the game, have a detailed understanding of game theory, have the discipline to put in the study. It's difficult to, to do those things. So the guys who are, who are on top in those regards, which probably are the most important single regards at the moment, uh, basically don't score that well in the other categories. They score okay, but they don't, they don't score that well. Um, it's sort of like uh, if, 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 I, if I look at the online world, if you had um, – if you had the perfect new school poker player, but they also had the intangibles – of Doyle or of Chip, that's the guy who would clearly crush. Now, the simple answer to your question is that the new school would beat up on the old school because the, because the newer technical skills are much more important on a relative basis. But 
I also think it's interesting that the new school relative to what the new school could be if they had the the attributes of the old school uh, is is pretty far apart still because because the old school um, one way that they're different is you have you have the new school which excels at the analytical methods but you're always going to have a deviation of how good your analytical methods are and how well you apply the analytical methods when under extreme stress. Doyle would be someone who his, his analytical methods might not be as good, but his ability to apply it under stress is almost perfect. There's very little deviation. Whereas one of the reasons I think the current crop of stars is not what they could be is because there is that deviation, right? This is a fascinating answer. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so in other words, like take a guy, um, take the best of the new generation of big bet players. Like take a jungle man, for instance, uh, Dan, Dan Cates. <clears throat> I always find it an interesting conversation. Um, Drilling in on this one particular thing, ability to, to think under, under conditions of stress. If you take the best, not of 20 years ago, but of 10 years ago, if you take like Patrick Antonius and, and you have Pat play jungle 12 hours a day for 30 days in a row, how would that result play out? And I think jungle wins on the basis of technical skill, but it's, it's an interesting matchup because Pat has this zero deviation quality where his, his analytical methods might not be, they might be an A minus instead of an A plus, but it's always going to be an A minus no matter what the stress level is. Um, And then there's an additional intangible, which we can get into later, lifestyle, discipline, mental toughness, not just in the immediate acute experience of stress, but in the, in the long-term 24-hour, two-week accumulation of stress, what is what is your deviation from lifestyle, discipline, good decision-making, et cetera, et cetera. So Pat would score, he's, because he scores very high in those areas, he's, a, he's, he's gonna be a tough opponent. And, and then there's also, there's also stuff like, um, well, reading ability, classic to the way most people think about poker. There's no question in my mind that Daniel's going to be the best reader. He's going to be the best uh, reader of human tells at that table. Um, he's someone who's, who's no, thought to be very skilled and is in fact very skilled at that. Um, that's something that comes from a talent, but also a long experience. Um, and then there's 
there's observation ability. So like Chip is never going to miss it if somebody uh, was not paying attention for a moment and it reflected their card values in some way or um, something's wrong with, with the pot or the dealer makes a mistake that some player could have benefited from. Like Chip's not going to miss those things. So, so, so observational intensity, op observational quality. Um, and in, in, like in my long poker experience, I've played with guys that are so good in those regards, like in those intangibles. And I compare it to the current crop of players. And I, and I say, I say, wouldn't it be amazing if you could combine the two, if you had, if you, if you had the, like, like back in the late 2000s, I'd play tons of big bet poker with Kenny Tran and Kenny, his observation, his observation is so keen. He would miss nothing. And his reading skills were a good bit better than Daniel's. Um, and yet he didn't keep up with the, the analytical changes in the game. So you don't get to see what it would be like to have both to have Keen observation, amazing people reading, um, amazing thinking under conditions of stress. But because the potential of his game didn't didn't evolve, he didn't study the analytical method. You don't get to see what that looked like. And looking, you haven't seen what it looks like. Aren't we looking at a lot of self-selection uh, into poker that was different? 30 years ago, 20 years ago than it is now, where, you know, well, you're, of course, familiar with Alvarez's uh, The Biggest Game in Town, this wonderful account of uh, poker as of around the early 1980s. And these guys were, were terrific poker players, but they were gamblers with a capital G. And they loved the, uh, they, they would bet on anything. And Doyle Brunson, you talk about his ability to function under stress. The stories are that Doyle Brunson, when he played golf, there was no such thing as choking. I mean, he has a six foot putt and it's for $50,000 <clears> and Doyle Brunson just sinks it. And, and, uh, and it's part of being a gambler and all the personality profiles that go with loving the action. And my question, I guess is, by the way, Brandon, this podcast is serving exactly the function that I was looking to serve by interviewing you for hours and end. So this is a, this is a really good start. Uh, so you select in people who love risk. They love the action. And they're in the game in part because they also love the people interactions there. And so the observation and all that is part of that is being able to engage with other people uh, in this case, exploitatively, in watching real closely and and being able to read body language and so forth. The, the, the skill set that is attracting highly visually spatial, talented minds to poker now, extremely analytical, extremely mathematical. Historically, people who are really, really good in those skills tend to be not so hot in the interpersonal skills, not so hot in the uh, being able to read 
social cognition and being able to read body language and so forth. It may be that the ideal poker player you're talking about is going to have to be something of a genetic freak in, in so far as it combines two very different uh, constellations of abilities. That, that makes sense. That, that does make sense to me. And um, as poker have, has evolved, you've no doubt seen that not only is it the highly analytical that are attracted to poker, but it, it also would seem that it's a peculiar personality type that uh, it's been pointed out there, there are certain, <clears throat> there are certain constellations that it intersects with, like the slight Asperger's type personality, the ADD personality, uh, OCD type personality, and not, not even so, not so much OCD, more like the slight Asperger's type style, which is known to be clearly especially bad in the social interactions. Um, it's been noticed that the, that the personality type has, has slid that way. Um, I don't really know what to make of it. One thing that I have noticed is that um, one difference of the type of people that are attracted to poker and that tend to excel at poker there's there's something about their personality where the the bluffing function which is obviously essential to poker is a natural thing in the sense that they think of it entirely conceptually and there's nothing personal that's happening there's it's just it's just part of, it literally is just part of the game. And there's nothing important that's happening in terms of, oh, you know, I'm bluffing away a house or like, there's nothing emotional that's happening about it. It's yeah. just, it's just part of the game. And there's, I've, I've noticed that there's something in just in the way people are wired where some people are like that and some people are not. You have some players uh, like uh, Tom Duan and uh, who seems to be have a foot in both worlds. Now, I don't know enough about Tom Dewan's game to know the extent to which he's absorbed, you know, the solvers and the rest of that. He certainly partakes in his willingness to bet on anything of the old school, uh, you know, high stakes gambling of all kinds mentality. Just an observation that occurred to me as, as we were talking about these constellations, you know, in some ways women uh, are more likely to come up with both the social cognition constellation of abilities and the analytical ones. And, and what I mean by that is part of the thing I've been looking at with the new book is uh, differences between men and women uh, cognitively. And there is a fascinating story to be tell, told because if you look at a, a set of highly gifted kids these are for a program that they were recruited in at age 13 uh, and they're in the top 0.01%, you know, some of them, all of them are in the top percentile. Uh, they have all IQs equivalent of 140 or higher. There is a very interesting difference between the men and the women in that group. They've been followed up now for 35 years. So we, we see them in the middle age. If guys are really, really high on analytical skills, 
uh, they tend not to be so great on the other side of the equation, uh, the, the interpersonal skills and so forth. Women who are really, really high in analytical skills, mathematical skills and so forth, are also likely to be extremely high in the social cognition and uh, the others. So in that sense, if you're looking to, how, how do you find this freak that I was referring to, who's really good in both, women are more likely to fit that combination than guys are, but then you add in a third element, which is risk-taking. And there, there's a very pronounced difference in between males and females in, uh, in, in inclination to take, to take risks. And of course, whether no matter which kind of poker you're playing, if you aren't prepared to take risks, you're not going to make it in the game. So that's the that's the one area in which probably women have less likely are less likely to have a superb skill set. But analytically versus interpersonal, it's women who are likely to have both. Yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to the day when we have some dominating uh, dominating female poker players. We're certainly getting there. We're we're de- we're definitely getting there. Um, and. Uh, Vanessa Selps was dominating for a long time. It's, it's too bad. She's playing a little bit less. Uh, one characteristic I would notice with Vanessa that I thought was <clears throat> a little bit unique among female players is there's <clears throat> one thing I find damaging for a poker player is like, a consensus orientation and her ability to not care about the consensus orientation and really step out on a limb was, I thought a very good quality uh, for her poker, poker play. Um, When I've referred to consensus orientation, there's uh, I've taught poker sometimes. And one of the things that I don't, like so much uh, in students is if they they want to tell everyone their bust out hand from a tournament and and get get buy-in that like I did this okay like this was a good way to go out um and I, I think people who seek consensus in their poker game it's a terrible quality because if I know what you're going to do and how you're going to go out, that that's, doesn't say very much about you as a poker player. Like that's not, that's not something that you, you should have. And, and you, you need to be learning in a way where you make a mistake and you don't want to tell anyone about what happened. Like you, you, you need to, you need to be willing to take chances where I had a strong read. I called the guy and I was completely wrong. And, but you need, there are certain things that you need to, work on and evaluate in your own mind and consensus poker playing is is not not a good path um to backtrack a bit you mentioned tom who i hadn't seen in a while but i happened to have dinner with a few few nights ago and uh, he is doing great uh as usual and tom is an interesting case because he does not study game theory much per se but he has a mind for game theory that is unbelievable. So he, people see him as a very talented poker player 
And he just is a very talented poker player. He just, you can play certain toy games that are strategic in nature with Tom and realize that he's really uh, very gifted in certain ways. Like we, we, we used to enjoy playing uh, liars poker where you play with the serial numbers of the dollar bill. And that game is not so complex, but you could come up with variations that are complex. Like you could, you could have 50 bills and then you and I play liars poker with the 50 bills and then we trade the bills so that we've seen the, the, the digits before and we're playing poker like that. And yet when you play complex games like that with Tom, you realize that he's exceptionally talented. Um, and what, what he does now is he, he plays poker mostly. I mean, he's just playing poker and he's gravitated towards the newer forms of poker. Like um, he's mostly been playing short deck lately. So, uh, and going way back to the, the uh, interaction of the legends versus, versus the new school, it's, it's interesting that the, the, uh, the new school guys that you view as new school are different than the guys that I view as new school. Like I view the guys as new school as the ones that are just hardcore at the computer, no know the computer solutions to certain things. Guys, you point out like Galfond and Rast, they're really straddling the two worlds. Um, and the new new school, these are gonna, these are the people that are really at their computers 50 hours a week trying to interpret what the computer's telling them. The only reason we haven't made even more rapid progress in poker is because the computer is spitting out the answers to these stylized questions that we're, that we're asking. And the answers are really good. I can look at the solutions and having studied the problems for a long time, see that the solutions are better than anything that I had previously come up with or previously thought. So the solutions are really good. And you can, in certain contexts, play the solutions. But the computer is never going to be able to tell you why the solution is the solution. And progress might be a little bit slower, slower in the next few years because there's going to be a lot of guessing as to why the solution is the solution in certain contexts. And the, the humans that make the, the biggest strides are going to be the ones who can most accurately answer that question, like why? is this why is the solution the solution why does the computer tend to play in a certain way in these spots assuming that it's right why is that the answer it's it just makes it sound uh brandon as if the load on memory in playing this kind of game is enormous i mean you're talking about going to one of the solvers and maybe you've, as you say, 50 hours a week that they spend. And so you've got hundreds of different uh, scenarios that they've, that they've solved for. But, you know, I have a solver that I'm still trying to figure out how to use it, uh, uh, but uh, effectively the GTO Plus. But when you've got frequencies that, okay, in this situation, 
But for this this one cell in your table, the frequencies are 25, 75, and then not too many, not a very different hand from that, it's uh, 40, 60. How the hell do you remember all that stuff? And what's the level of detail at which you have to remember and to what extent are you starting to work with patterns? Well, you want to be on patterns. So you want to, um, the most important lessons that you can learn are um, if the computer is falling into a, a, a very distinct pattern in a certain way and it accords with some strategic consideration like preserved position wherever possible um, or then you you want to go that way um, and there is the concept of the the cost of complexity in a solution versus the benefits of complexity you you don't you don't always have to do what the computer is telling you to do if if you know from past experience that the benefits are are slight in that in that way um, so if i'm teaching someone in a in a gto framework I would, I would say that you want to grab the uh, low-hanging fruit first. So, what have computers solved in a way that we know we know is much better than human intuition, and we know is much better than anything we've done in the past? We know short-stack stuff has been solved, and you need to study short stack play and responses to short stack play. We know in slightly more complex than that, that, that certain tournament considerations with varied payouts in short stack that been solved and you can study that. Now, um, for the two five no limit player, what can you study most profitably um, <laughs> You could start with 100, 100 big blind poker, like full stack poker, and study the, the opening ranges, the GTO opening ranges that, that the computer is coming up with. And I find that most players can make a big improvement by, by being on those opening ranges. And and then keep in mind, all right, what is the context that those opening ranges were developed for? They were computers trying to come up with best response to best response. They're assuming that everyone is your worst case opponent, perfectly rational, capable of anything. So, so it serves every player to know the ranges perfectly. you can deviate from those ranges on the safe side or the dangerous side. You have some of the players that I respect the most are, are people that know GTO very well, but can slip into exploitive role when they know they can get away with it. So like, a, like Bonomo, I don't think it was coincidental that he had the, the two big years at the time that he had them because he, he knows 
GTO poker, but his ability to slip into that table captain role and open up frequencies when he knows he can get away with it and exploit is, is unbelievable. Um, so he's, he's able to alter frequencies to the dangerous side, like even looser when it suits him. You, you can also deviate on the safe side. So for instance, um, say you know exactly how you should play GTO on um, 100 big blinds deep, but you find that your experience base, you're a little bit uncomfortable playing big pots out of position and you wanna, instead of raising 12 and a half, three betting 12 and a half percent from the small blind in a certain spot, you just, you just wanna simplify your, your game and cut it down to 7%. That's fine. Just know what you're doing. Like you're just, you're, you're making yourself a, like an easier small blind to play against. You're simplifying your game tree on later streets. Like it's fine. So just, just understand um, where you're doing it. And there's, there's also the concept in, in GTO poker of there's a cost to throwing away a previous experience base because you're, you're playing differently now. Okay. So, um, you don't always want to take on that cost. In other words, let's say that, uh, you have a hand, you're supposed to three bet from the big blind and maybe you would have three bet even before studying the game theoretic frequencies, you three bet and you get called. Now you have a big pot, the flop comes out and you notice that for this board texture, the computer will always check. Um, but let's say in your entire poker experience, you've always bet having three bet before the flop and been called. Now we can assume that the computer is right and that strategically you're supposed to check, but for you to check in that spot, you're throwing away the whole previous experience based of hands you've played where every time the situation has happened, you bet. <laughs> so I would advise there, maybe if you're playing an important, and in an important spot, bet, because the cost of throwing away your previous experience base is too high. And, but, but just know that what you're supposed to do is check and you strive down the road to be, to be checking in that spot. I've had a very interesting experience just the last month. Uh, I think I got the GTO plus a month or two ago. And I also started playing poker snowy, uh, using poker snowy <clears throat> and and so they have the training function of poker snowy, which I, which I will play a hundred hands at a time. And <clears throat> I decided a couple of weeks ago, okay, I'm going to look at poker snowy's advice on every single step. And I'm always going to follow it as a way of just uh, figuring out what I was doing differently. And I was amazed when I did that because uh, I, I learned in all the books I read when I was starting poker that, that relentless aggression is the way to go and uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
And here Poker Snowy is telling me to check in all of these situations where I always assumed I was supposed to bet. And so in that sense, when I asked you, how is it that you incorporate GTO into, uh, into decisions, <clears throat> I understand that Poker Snowy is not a GTO uh, system, but nonetheless, it's got trillions of hands that it's basing its probabilities on. And it is playing in a radically different way from what I thought was the right way to play. And insofar as you are doing that at a much higher level of sophistication, <clears throat> then I can then I can see what is otherwise very hard for me to see, which is in a real game and a real table and a real casino where you're just dealing with one set of guys. Um, how does GTO affect your play? And I guess my experience of poker snowy the last few weeks has told me why it can have that effect. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting that the uh, in a way the engines are a lot more passive than you would think. And and Galfond, he did play in a way that was similar to the uh, GTO bots before other people did. And he he almost when he was dominating in the late two thousands, he it almost looked like he was an exploitive caller. He was just he was ha having check call lines much more often than other players. But it was it was working out because betting frequencies were too high on the other side. How do you uh, categorize yourself? Uh, you talked about the new, new uh, school and versus the, you know, the Rast, Brian Rast and Phil Gelfond and so forth. Where are you in the spectrum? Um, I think, <clears throat> I think uh, fairly new school. It's, it's sort of, um, <clears throat> It's sort of interesting because I want to go back to your experience playing in the local card room. Uh, I started playing poker in 2001 in Biloxi, which sounds like a very similar environment to where you're playing. Where and back then it was in Biloxi, um, people did smoke at the table. And I came upon poker because. I had taken a graduate game theory class in college and I was about to go to Harvard. And I was reading the, a book about poker and I was like, well, it'd be cool to play. So I would go play in Biloxi. This was in the summer. And then I would play when I was back from school. And um, it was limit at the time, like four, eight limit, but then a year later, they started playing some No Limit, and I started playing some No Limit. But then at Harvard, there was a game that the Harvard Poker Club would run, and then I'd play sometimes at Foxwood. So I, I've had the long poker room experience that very few people have had. Um, and in that sense, it's old school, but studied, took many graduate courses in game theory, taught game theory. The, my orientation is always economics, analytical methods. So in that sense, it's always been new school and was one of the first people to read mathematics of poker, was, was early. And I'm always looking for what I think of as the strongest of the new generation and trying to learn from what they're doing. So, <laughs> It's new, it's new school, but 
I've followed poker for a long time. So I'd say it's like that. Which which is the way of the which is the way of the people that have evolved, right? Like you think about Daniel. Um, Daniel is very impressive in the way that he evolves over time. Very, and he just knows when to be humble. It's the bottom line. He knows he knows when to be humble. And that in itself is really valuable. Like where, where you hundred, literally hundreds of times in Daniel's poker career, he's, he's taken the view where, all right, my ego tells me that I should be winning in this game, but I'm not. And I know I'm not, but I'm going to go knock heads in there for a while until I figure it out or until I make myself better. Because he's, he's had that experience hundreds of times and, and not, not the experience of like, I'm going to, I do it thinking I'm best and I lose. And then I go reflect on it in my mom's basement, knowing that, that I've lost rather the experience of, I have enough information now where I know I'm losing. I'm going to battle heads in there knowing that I'm losing and, and I'm going to be learning at the same time, asking the questions, taking lessons from, from other players, and I'm going to get better that way. And so compare with other, with other players, you, you talk about that as a special strength of Daniels. Uh, how does that differ from a lot of other players deal with adversity? There's a stubbornness where you you just lose and then you're not you're you just lose and keep losing. And the stubborn and and the experience of losing there are there are thousands of case studies in that. Some, sometimes it's the guys beat every competitor that has come his way. And, and the next person comes along, of course, he's expecting to win. It takes a lot of evidence to change, change tune. And, and in poker, sadly, sometimes it's come in the way of the boxer that, he beats every opponent that he's ever had, and then, and then some guy damages him, and he finds out that the guy had loaded gloves or something. You know, like in poker, that's there's examples of that. I haven't been involved in the online world in a long time, but I would I would have to imagine that there's a lot of wreckage there in in. in you could get cheated based on some sort of internet security situation, or you could legitimately be the best human and find yourself playing against an AI bot that's better than you without realizing that you're playing against an AI bot. Like there's so many things. And um, yeah, it's hard to lose and, and reflect on it. It's also hard to put yourself in a new setting knowing that 
you're probably going to lose like the, for instance, Rast is a good example of someone who was winning a lot in no limit games decided to play mixed being pretty sure that he was going to get beaten up for a while, but taking the longer view that if I play these mixed games, which are kind of big, but not big enough to really hurt me at the moment, then over the long term, I'll be one of the best players and it'll be good for me. He's, he's a good example of someone who, <clears throat> who made that development. And, and Galfon could tell you similar stories, uh, battling mixed games and so forth. It's a different world you live in, Brandon, from, from anything <laughs> that uh, <clears throat> I, I personally experience. The, I mean, it's just you're, you're thinking differently. You are, well, I guess it's, it's the difference between pros in any field and amateurs, that the, the game is technically the same, but in practice, it functions completely differently. I, I will give you a, just a, a silly example. I'll tell you what's ruining poker from my point of view is not uh, having anything to do with technique. It's the damn cell phones. One of the things that I found when I was playing long sessions in 2005 or 2006 in a, in a casino was I might be 10 hours into the session, but I would still be unhappy at the prospect of having to stop in a couple of hours because I was enjoying myself so much. I find that that's not true anymore because half a dozen guys at the table and including me are on their cell phones all the time. The camaraderie has gone down, the table talk has gone down. And a lot of the things that made poker just plain fun, it seems to me have been diminished by this simple technological change whereby everybody has a cell phone with them. Uh, I would imagine that in the games you play in, having your attention uh, distracted by being on a cell phone would be disastrous. You'd be surprised though, uh, cell phones are still an integral part of life at the table at the high stakes. Uh, and part of that is just the practical matter that if you're playing a lot of poker in a two week period and there's activity going around and the cell phone's the only way to, to deal with some of the activity or on the cell phone, you try, you try to minimize it and everyone knows that the, that the best case would be to use it none of the time, but, um, <clears throat> It has, a, it has a way of making appearances in high-stakes games and, and high-stakes tournaments. Um, the World Series of Poker, when cell phones became a big thing, for a very short time, they tried to do no cell phones at the table. Knowing that the integrity of the game was a little bit at stake with at least the possibility of, for instance, right now you could look at a jammer fold. You're not supposed to, but you could look at a jammer fold table on your, on your cell phone or communicate hands with a coach or something like that. So they, they felt the integrity of the game was, was at play and they said no cell phones, but they are a profit maximizing entity and eventually they realized people wanted this, wanted the cell phones. Um, the, it has, it has changed the game for the worse and uh, poker we think of as a very fast paced activity, but it is interesting how cell phones destroy the attention span and destroy everything that's um, 
longer in time orientation, whether it's golf or even movies, right? Like it, it's just anything that takes long periods of time, cell phones tend to destroy. So hopefully poker won't go that way. It's also a good uh, illustration of weaknesses of willpower. Because here's a case, a case with me where I say, you used to enjoy the game more, just have more fun when you didn't have your cell phone. So therefore, just leave your cell phone in the car and go out and check it every two hours. And I can say that to myself. I know that's the right thing to do. I know it would be, have a happy outcome for me. Can't make myself do it. Uh, for all the reasons that you talk about the difficulty of applying theoretical knowledge in situations of stress, sometimes it just applies in everyday situations where you just can't make yourself do the right thing. So I want to ask you one poker question that's related to your uh, previous work. In, um, in coming apart, you you talk about this phenomena where um, if you know someone's intelligence, you can say a lot about their lifestyle in ways that you wouldn't think would be true. You might be able to take guesses about how they how they spend their free time and whether they're a smoker or not, what type of alcohol they drink, things like this. Um, <clears throat> And you note that in poker, um, I would say, first of all, your poker room where you noted 30% of people smoke, uh, they, that might be, it's an unusual poker room. And one of the most surprising things that's happened over the course of my poker career is that poker players became very health conscious and almost maniacal about health. That, I would have never guessed that to be true. And it's one of the most shocking things that's ever happened in my, in my poker career, that poker players would start to talk about diets and, 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 be, and have health prop bets and be very much into health. That is a shocking thing. Because I would say in the late 2000s, even in the highest stakes games, you would see some egregious behavior from a health standpoint. Um, so I'm shocked by that. And I wonder how you think about it, because based on coming apart, it would, it would seem like your thesis might be that it's become a more cognitively demanding field and therefore it now at higher stakes has a higher concentration of smart people and smart people have certain habits and that's what we're seeing. Whereas I'm not sure I see it that way. I see it, I see it more as poker being this, crucible this area of hyper competition that's almost a perfect area of hyper competition international hyper competition and it's it's so ferocious that it com competes away every lifestyle deficiency Brandon, i think you've got it exactly right insofar as when you get this kind of competition it affects lifestyle style choices look back in the 1960s at 
professional football players. They were in nothing like the physical shape they're in now, because as time has gone on, the you can't have the uh, 300-pound tackle who's who's uh, full of flab. He better be full of muscle, because otherwise he just simply cannot compete. And the same thing has gone on in the poker world, whereby you can't you can't afford to uh, be a heavy drinker playing with a hangover with the kind of, uh, of, of poker you're playing. But attached to that as well is self-selection. You are selecting for extremely high levels of intellectual skill now in a way you were not selecting before. And along with that goes the other things which in coming apart enabled me to predict that probably you are very health conscious, uh, you don't drink or smoke, uh, you uh, don't listen to uh, uh, talk radio, you listen to NPR, all the things I could, I, where, you, where you have very strong tendencies. And you didn't select for those things before. You selected in the 1970s and 1980s, you selected for people who love to gamble and were willing to go take their chances in uh, the back rooms of a Fort Worth uh, uh, saloon uh, where they're taking a chance not just in losing their money to a better player, they're taking a chance of getting held up and robbed when they, when they exit. Completely different set of people that were drawn into that. And I have to say, the ones who were drawn into it 30 or 40 years ago, probably a lot more fun. Uh, you are in a better way to uh, to answer that than I am, but it would be interesting to characterize the modern players because obviously there are some who look to me like they'd be a lot of fun to go out for an evening with, just to hang out with and talk. And there are a bunch of the others which I look at and I say, that could be kind of dry and uh, cerebral and not nearly as much fun. It's interesting. Um... When you mentioned Doyle and you talked about choking in golf, mm-hmm. there there are lots of stories of Doyle gambling and Dewey Tomko and the same crew. And Doyle has a famous quote that he's only known, I think, six people in his life that didn't choke in golf gambling. Like in all, in all of his 40-year-plus experience, he only met six people, Dewey being one of them. Um, and, uh, I'm enjoying every once in a while doing maybe a little golf bet or something. Um, I found it interesting that there would seem to be a correlation there. If he's not choking at golf, he, uh, will think well under stress in I would say Patrick is similar in that he has low deviations under stress in the way Doyle would both in say golf and in poker but my observation at the poker table is that there's not necessarily a correlation between those two things between being tough uh, in the in the heat of the moment athletically versus um, on the poker table, and I, w- I would be interested in knowing like why that's true. I think there's probably some physiological underpinning 
but I would, I would say it popularly like this. If you think about the, let me take myself for example. If I really don't feel stress at a poker table, it just doesn't, I just don't feel stress at a poker table. I don't feel stress when I'm taking an exam. I do feel stress if I'm hitting an overhead on match point or trying to chip out of a bunker in a golf bet. And I think that in poker there, there are a lot of people like that where the poker is more akin to like taking a test and they just don't feel don't feel any pressure. But if you put them in a different setting, like an athletic field, they'd be massive chokers. Mm-hmm. Um, and what matters for them career wise is how, how is their decision making deviating in the setting that it matters in poker? And often it's not deviating so much. Um, and I would think, I think there might be like different mechanisms at play. It's sort of in the military, they care a lot about this phenomenon of how do you, how do you deviate under stress? And I understand, I haven't been in the military, but I understand that in training for like the most elite special forces, they, they have ways in training of, of really testing this, this phenomenon of how you respond under stress, not continuous stress, but acute stress. Like they, I don't know, push you in a pool and you have to get out of some tie that you're in or something. Um, and to me, that calm under pressure is similar to the athletic calm under pressure. I'm not sure it's the same thing as what you need in, in poker. It would be, it would be interesting to look into it, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Probably a key factor is simply the ability to look at those chips as being chips and ignore the fact, as you put it earlier, I'm bluffing away a house. Well, you don't, you can't think of it that way. It's you're, you're bluffing away this stack of clay uh, that uh, I would think that, that you have to think that way. Uh, do you have set up as some of your interviews, like some of the best of the, the old school guys that have not much progress in analytical methods? See, I, there were, there would be, it would be some very, very interesting interviews. I would think, did, did you ever come across the name Billy Duarte? D-U-A-R-T-E? Yes, but I can't remember the context. That would be the best, he, he died. But that would be the best possible interview because he was winning at a time that the games had already switched to being highly analytical. Like, let's just say in 2009, 2010, maybe a bit earlier, even 2000, say 2008, 2010, he's, he's winning in like big, tough games against tough opposition and entirely old school and had all of the just, just old school strengths. You, you were never, ever going to get a read off of him there's a good chance he was going to get a read off you. If he talked with you, it was to your detriment, like extremely observant, 
remembered all of the hands that that you had played, important hands you had played, that he had played with you. He just knew had a good intuition about poker, but but old school and 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 winning. Um, he'd be interesting to chat with. It's actually hard in the modern environment to find someone similar who you might chat with who'd be the archetypical old school person. Yeah, there, there, are, there are a variety of people. First, I just started. Uh, the reason that uh, I appeared on the Twitterverse was uh, I was out in, in Las Vegas, and uh, I think Nolan Dollar won't mind me saying that uh, he's been a big help to me in uh, starting to get into this. And he, of course, knows a whole bunch of people on the, the old school side. So I want to I want to interview. I, d I don't want to interview the people who've been interviewed a thousand times. So whereas I'd love to talk to Doyle, I'm certainly not going to bother him until I've talked to a lot of other people. But uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to Dan Harrington. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to some uh, lesser known names that I'm starting to hear about, like the guy you were just describing. Uh, it's Seidel would be a perfect person to chat with. Dan was uh, um, talking about uh, mixing up your game and probabilities and so forth way before uh, any of the game theory stuff came in, uh, for example. And I've, I've, I've just noticed in reading Dan Harrington's books that in many ways it seemed to me he was anticipating say, the same kinds of, uh, some of the same kinds of things that came along later. Yeah, I would, I would say that he was looking for practical shortcuts of applying game theory um, early on. And that was, his methods were highly effective at the time. You could think of what actually happened in terms of game theory's application to poker is that it took a very long route. Maybe because it had to, I'm not, but it took a very, very long route. And then once the progress came, it came very quickly. So, so in other words, Maybe in the theory of poker, Sklansky has a chapter in game theory. The thinking might be that, eh, well, the next similar book has a few chapters in game theory and you're applying it. Um, what actually happened was you had almost no involvement in game theory until around 2007, 2008. Then you have this side pocket of the mathematics of poker comes out, people see the progress, and then it's almost like two divergent paths. It's mathematics of poker, University of Alberta, like all these people working, and, and then the, the practical players who are aware of it and trying to apply game theory a bit, and then it kind of all really converges deeply 2015, 16 plus. Um, and but now you've it, got the solvers. Uh, the solvers. Yeah, which really, which really accelerated things. Um, I'll tell you what I would like to do. Um, I would love to do a part two of, of this interview where... Me too. Yeah. I would, like to, I would like to get into a part two. And, and in part two, um, I want to go into more poker 
And I also want to go into your long history from Harvard in the early 60s onward and and talk about uh, academic career, AEI, the whole the whole thing, the whole thing. Um, and uh, in the poker Twitter sphere, I found that you had contacted a couple of people and they were like, oh, you wrote the bell curve. I don't want to talk with you about poker, which I thought was the most ridiculous thing. I love my man, I, Isaac Haxton, but he was, guilty, he was guilty of that and, and, and a couple of other poker players as well. And I thought, I thought well, this is so unjust. Like why, why you have a longtime poker player who's writing about poker? How, how could this possibly be the response? Um, so, so I want to go through the whole history and um, in the meantime, listeners who, uh, who are eager for the history, go to Dan Harris's podcast. What's the name of his podcast? Waking, Waking Life? It's something about morning. Uh, Wake up? Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's Harris's... Uh... That's terrible. I can't come up with the name. Well, I, I'm confused because there he was a philos, he was a philosophy major, and there was this philosophy movie that came out in the late '90s called Waking Life, and I, I'm confused whether his podcast is called that or something. We can something look about. that but, up. But, yeah. but it did. Uh, that was a great podcast. You guys were two hours mostly focused on on the controversy of, of the bell curve and how it has proved it, the controversy went away, but somehow in the, it, you had the incident in Middlebury college and it sort of reheated a little bit and he, he, he felt the need to rescue you on that. But I, I want to go through the whole intellectual history and talk about how it leads to unfair Twitter receptions in 2019. I'd, I'd love to do that. And to those who are listening right now, uh, I just want to say to if you've heard about the bell curve, you very probably have heard a whole bunch of things that aren't true. So if we go through that, some of that uh, controversy next time, maybe we can clarify that. This has been Beautiful. lots of fun. Yeah, I hope we can do it like in January, if it yep. suits you. I'm okay, perfect. Thanks so much. I'll talk with you later. My pleasure. Bye-bye.